Father, we pray that that will be true, that we will be active in seeing your kingdom come and your will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. And we pray that we will be partnered with you, even in the care of orphans, Lord, in helping your kingdom come in that circumstance. And Father, now as we open up Scripture, we pray that you will show us with fresh eyes, with fresh ears, with a willing heart, more deeply how we can walk with you, how we can live out the realities of your kingdom in our own lives and in our own contexts. So please be our teacher today through your spirit and through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever thought about how hard it is to truly be content in your life? To truly be content. Realistically, we all come from our mother's womb literally screaming our discontent with what we are experiencing in this world. And as children grow up, I mean, they continue to experience that. I mean, it's a phenomenon that we live throughout our lives. I think about children as they begin to learn how to talk. How often you hear children saying, can I please have that toy? Or can I have that piece of candy, please? And I mean, they may demand it a little bit more than just saying, please. But they're living as if that, that toy or that piece of candy or whatever they want is that missing piece of the puzzle. If they could just get that one thing, then they will truly be happy and satisfied. But we all know what happens. They get the toy within a few days, if not a few hours. They're kind of tired of it. They're moving on. They want something else. They get the candy. Well, that just leads to wanting more and more and more, doesn't it? That's the way we are in life. You see, children, as they grow up to be teens... They're, they're yearning for that time when they turn 16 to get their driver's license, to get a car that they can drive. And they get that, and it's kind of fun and exciting, but then the newness wears off. And then they're looking ahead to that time when they're going to graduate from high school. They want to get done with high school for whatever comes up after that. So they're looking forward to that, for people to go on to college. I mean, yeah, it's exciting to be in college, but in college you're looking for something that will bring satisfaction and identity and meaning. So you look to good grades, thinking, okay, if I can get good grades, that will give me a sense of satisfaction. Or they look to, to popularity, or to their body image, or to adrenaline rushes, or various forms of emotional high. Get out of college. People who want to be married, but they aren't yet married, they're yearning, if I can just find a husband, just find a wife, then I will be satisfied. Then I'll be happy. Then I won't really be looking for anything more beyond that. They get married, and it's nice, but then, you know what, even if you have a really great, healthy, enjoyable marriage, you're still looking for more oftentimes. You want kids, so you have kids. And then when you have kids, when they're young, they're hard work. It's not easy to raise young kids. And so you're thinking, oh, I look forward to that day when they're going to be easier to take care of, when they're a little bit older, can, want, can take care of themselves, play by themselves, go to the bathroom by themselves. And then they get a little bit older to be teenagers. And you think, if only we could turn back the clock a little bit because when it's not quite as stressful and not quite as dramatic and, and they have a little bit more innocence. And, and then, then we come to our jobs and we think, I just want to be a little bit more successful in my job, make a little bit more money, climb that ladder a little bit more. And if we are able to do that, then we either have to work really, really hard to sustain that success or just what's our appetite and we want more and more and more. And if we aren't, aren't experiencing the sense of fulfillment and satisfaction we want in our job, what do we do? Well, we either complain about it and recognize our dissatisfaction, or we jump to another job. And the other job, it's satisfying for a while, but then the fulfillment begins to wear off. 
Because that's the nature of life. And, and we, what ends up happening is we go through life just on this constant treadmill or, or hamster wheel of wanting more and more and more, of seeking satisfaction, but rarely, if ever, truly finding it. It's a reality that is quite universal among humans. Well, today we're going to come face to face with the Apostle Paul, who says very confidently, I have found the secret to being content in any and every situation. I mean, that's quite a bold statement, isn't it? Especially when we live in a world that is filled with so much discontent. So today we're going to look to see, Paul, what is that secret that you have? Is it really that fulfilling, or are you just playing with it? So you're just pulling our chain here. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4. Today we are concluding our series called Gospel Fluency. Over the last couple months, we've been walking through the book of Philippians, asking, okay, what is the gospel? What's this good news that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection has accomplished for us? And how does that good news of Jesus Christ apply to every area of our lives? And personally, I've really enjoyed this series. I've grown a lot in my own understanding and application of the gospel to all areas of life. And I'm also thankful that even though this series is concluding today, the themes that we're talking about will certainly continue. It'll continue in our classes and the sermons and really everything we do as a church because we always want to be growing in our gospel-centeredness and in our gospel fluency. But today we're concluding the series, and we're going to specifically zoom in on just a few verses of this passage, Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13, although we will be referencing some others. I want to pick up in verse 10 where Paul says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. So we see here at the beginning of this passage, and it's a theme after this passage as well, that the Philippians have sent Paul a financial gift. It came through a man, Epaphroditus. We, we ran into him back in Philippians 2. If you read a little bit after this passage that I just read, it says very clearly that Epaphroditus was the messenger who delivered this financial contribution to Paul for the sake of his ministry and his well-being. And Paul here is acknowledging the gift. I think that's one of the main catalysts for why he wrote this letter is it's important that when you receive something, that you acknowledge it, you offer thanks. And this is a, a great principle that everyone really should be living out. I know it's something that I don't always do the best at, but it's something that I learned back when I was in campus ministry uh, before I went to seminary. I had a summer-long new staff training. And at the new staff training, uh, we had a full week that was devoted to support raising because I was essentially a missionary to these college campuses, and I had to raise my own financial support and to, uh, for my salary and for my insurance and for my ministry expenses. So we had a full week of, of, of training on how to raise this financial support. It was actually a really cool process of learning how to trust God in new ways and meeting a lot of cool people. But one of the main things, one of the main principles I remember from this training was this, that whenever you receive a check for your ministry, uh, before you put it in the mail, to send it into headquarters to get, to, to get deposited into your staff account. The first thing that you do is to write the thank you. 
You write the thank you before you deposit the check. And that's a great principle, and that's a principle that um, I'm sure Paul didn't go through some sort of official new staff training, but he knew this principle that it's important to thank people to recognize their gifts. So that's what he is doing here. But he also wants to make sure that he clarifies where his heart is in this. He wasn't really feeling a great dire need for financial assistance. It wasn't like he was out there looking uh, for um, the mail to come and wondering, okay, I hope some money comes in the mail for me today. I'm really struggling here. I hope someone is caring for me. That's not the way he is. Listen to what he says. I'm not saying this because I'm in need in terms of expression, expressing the, um, the acknowledgement or the gratitude for the gift. I'm not saying it because I have need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. So Paul's focusing here on his contentment, that he was not in dire need of this gift. He, I mean, he, he was surviving just well because he was content. He says, I have learned how to be content. And we may wonder, okay, Paul, how do you learn how to be content here? I mean, it's, it's, it's something we want to figure out because we struggle with it. But what does it really mean, Paul, that you really learned to be content? Well, listen to what he says next. He says, I know what it is to be in need I know what it is to have plenty. What he's referring to here is his experience. That through the course of his ups and downs of life, that he learned the secret to contentment. And you think about Paul's life. I mean, he had a lot of ups and downs. I mean, he says he knows what it is to have plenty. He had a lot of great things in various aspects of his life that, that he was kind of on top of the world in many ways. Back in his pre-Christian days, he was really an up-and-comer in the Jewish world. He, he most likely came from a fairly prominent or, or at least middle class to upper class uh, family in a prominent Roman city. He was trained under a top notch teacher. He, he was really rising very quickly and had the admiration of his fellow Jews. Odds are good he had a decent amount of financial success in the process. After he came to know Christ, he saw God do a lot of really, really cool things of transforming people's lives through the gospel. And we know that even though he didn't always have a lot of money at that time as he was a missionary uh, planting churches, we know he still had occasions where he was really basking in the lap of luxury, or at least he was in that type of circumstance. For instance, we see in Acts chapter 16 that he met a woman named Lydia. This actually takes place in Philippi, which is where this letter was being sent. He met this woman named Lydia. It says that she... Um, and she was a dealer of purple cloth. Now, in our culture, um, we, we may think, that's not really that big of a deal. Purple cloth, well, we can get purple wherever we want. Well, in that culture, that, that symbolized wealth and royalty. So she was a pretty, pretty much a top dog there in that culture in terms of dealing with a very luxurious um, set of society there. I mean, you perhaps she would be the equivalent of kind of like the CEO of Prada or something like that in today's world. I mean, she was up there and she came to know Christ and she invited Paul and his traveling companions to come stay with her family at their house. And I imagine that during that time that, that he was experiencing a lot of nice luxuries. I think odds are pretty decent that Lydia probably had some servants, perhaps a chef there. And, and Paul was there just experiencing the nice luxuries of wealth there during that time. So he knew what it was like to have plenty, 
to be uh, lavished with blessings of finances and wealth and prosperity. But he also knew the opposite end of the spectrum. He knew what it was like to deeply struggle. I mean, those very same Jewish friends that he had before his conversion to Christ, afterwards, some of them are literally trying to kill him. I mean, that's pretty stark, isn't it? I mean, you look through the course of his life, he faced a lot of challenges and hardships. I think back to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul lists some of these things. 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 24, Paul says, Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. So we see here that Paul, I mean, he not only had times in his life where um, he had plenty and he was doing really, really well circumstantially, he had a lot of times in his life where, where he was barely scraping by. He was at the bottom of the food chain there. He was, he was in prison. He, he was going hungry. He was going without sleep. Circumstantially, you could look at his life and say he was struggling. But in reality, he wasn't struggling because all, through all these ups and through all these downs, he learned about contentment. He learned that even in the highest of highs, those things still don't satisfy. He learned that when he's down in the trenches, when, when he's struggling and, not, and struggling to make ends meet or when there's not the food or whatever, he's learned that even then that he has someone he can trust in. Now, I, th I think about our lives, how, how, how our circumstances can never be the ultimate source of our joy and satisfaction. Because you know what? No matter how well your life is going, all it takes is one bad biopsy or one car accident to turn your life upside down. And that even if you are just sailing through life without too many big challenges, even if, even if you have all kinds of things going well for you, those things still will not ultimately satisfy. I think of what the, the, the actor Jim Carrey has said. It's a quote I go back to a lot. He said, you know what? I wish that everyone could become rich and famous and live out all their dreams so that they can learn that that's not enough. So that they can accomplish those dreams and realize, you know what? That's still not enough to ultimately satisfy us, to give us contentment. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, if, if you're someone who's really struggling a lot just to make ends meet, you aren't sure where your, your rent check is going to come from or anything like that, you may be thinking, oh, I just need more money. I just wish I had a job. I wish I had this or that. You know, in reality, in those circumstances, a lot of times some money can help. A job can help. But it still can't supply the ultimate source of fulfillment and satisfaction. Paul says, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I mean, experience can be a great teacher if we allow ourselves to be taught through experience. Shelley and I oftentimes talk about how thankful we were, or how thankful we are, that the first half of our marriage or so, um, 
we didn't exactly have a lot of money. I was in seminary at the time, and we lived in suburban Chicago because that's where the seminary was, high cost of living, high cost of schooling. We literally were living in the red every single month. I mean, there was nothing we could do about it. We both had jobs, but even still, we weren't fully making ends meet. We were literally living on loans. Let me describe to you our budgeting system. I did keep an Excel spreadsheet. Um, I did keep track of all the different categories and where money was going, but here's our basic, basic budgeting strategy. Spend as little as possible. I mean, I, before that, I had used what's called the envelope system of determining, okay, I have this amount of money in each of these different categories to spend each month. In some sense, the envelope system was out the door because we always had more going out than we had coming in except for the case of loans helping out. And so we, we developed this mentality of spending as little as possible. I mean, we didn't go hungry. We still, we did fine. I mean, we weren't complaining. It was fine. But we developed that mentality of, of you know what? We don't need a lot of luxuries. We, can, we don't need to spend a lot of money to be happy. And we're thankful for that because now as we have more financial means than we had then, we're not living in the red anymore. We're living in the black, which is very nice. Now that mentality still carries over because we learn from experience we don't need to spend a lot of money to be happy. So we're thankful for that experience. I, I can look at my life too and say, you know what? I've had a lot of times where, where I have had worldly success in various ways. I grew up in a family that was pretty well off financially. And you know what? I felt like I was deprived sometimes because, for instance, I, my parents never let me get a Nintendo. I wanted one so desperately. I coveted all my friends' Nintendos. Uh, but my, my parents never let me get one. I thought I was deprived, but realistically, when I look at my life, I was doing pretty well. I mean, there was never anything that I really needed um, that I didn't get, and I, I lived with a lot of luxuries. I look at, uh, I mean, I've, I've had awards. I've had uh, various accomplishments. I've had nice stuff. I've had a nice truck. I've had a nice stereo. And realize, you know what? Those things are nice. There's nothing inherently wrong with them, but they don't satisfy us. Paul says, I have learned the secret of being content in any, in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And we may wonder, okay, Paul, what is that secret to contentment? I'll look to verse 13. Paul says, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. This is a super well-known verse among Christians. I, I also think it's perhaps the most frequently misquoted verse in all of Scripture. I mean, it's a verse that's used in all kinds of places. I mean, you hear a lot at sporting events of, of someone, I mean, they have it on their, like, eye black underneath their eyes, Philippians 4.13. They have it written on the back of their shoes to remind them, uh, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. You see interviews after a game when someone hits a winning shot in basketball, and they, they think, they, they're talking about how, you know what, I wasn't nervous because I was thinking about Philippians 4.13, that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I had faith that he was going to help me make that basket. You hear people use this verse when they're struggling in life or they, they face a big difficulty or a big obstacle and they have a job interview. They say, well, okay, I'm nervous, but I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. They use it in all kinds of circumstances. and Honestly, it's taking it way out of context. Paul did not have in mind sports when he was saying this. He did not have in mind job interviews. He did not have in mind obstacles in life. He had in mind contentment. You have to look at the context of a verse to understand what it's saying. You can't just rip a verse out of context, look at it abstractly by itself, 
and derive its meaning. You have to ask, what was the author's original intent here? And Paul, throughout this passage, is talking about being content. And when he says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength, he's referring to the fact that I can be content in all circumstances, good or bad, because Christ is strengthening me. Now, if you really want to dig into this, let me, let me take you a little bit deeper. It gets a little technical, so hold on here for a second. If you look back in the original language, which was Greek, there was a word play going on here, repetition of words. The Greek word pas means every or all. Back in verse 12, Paul uses that word twice. I mean, it's obviously conjugated differently, ponti, pasen, ponta, and the three different occurrences. It's conjugated differently, but it's the same root word. And Paul has a word play going on here. He says, verse 12, I've learned the secret of being content in any, there's pas, and every pas situation right there. And then you come to verse 13, the very next sentence is, I can do everything pas through him who gives me strength. And so when, when his original readers who, who could read or understand Greek, when they hear him saying, I can do all things, and he's just said, that I've learned the secret to being content in all things, their minds are immediately going to make that connection. There's not a great way to translate that into English. That's why I, I, I generally try not to throw too much Greek up there. But this is one time I thought it's helpful for this frequently misquoted verse to bring it into clarity that what Paul is talking about here is God will give us the strength to be content in any and all situations. Now this comes into even greater clarity when we look at another passage that's quite similar over in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul's telling of a time, a miraculous, a bit of a mysterious time, when Paul was taken for a brief period of time into heaven. He was able to see things and hear things that were absolutely amazing. They were so amazing that God would not allow him to recount them again on this earth. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 7. He says, To keep me from being conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations... There was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take, him away, take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul is experiencing a very challenging trial here. This thorn in the flesh, we don't know exactly what it is. We can speculate. But bottom line is he wanted it taken away. God said no. He said, My grace is is sufficient for you. This idea, this word for sufficient is the exact same word that's used elsewhere for the word content. My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is enough to give you contentment regardless of your situation. So when, when Paul says, I can, do, I can have contentment in all these situations through him who strengthens me, he's being strengthened by the grace of God. Now, as I was thinking about this passage this week, there was something I was really wrestling with. I mean, I, I realized, you know what? Christ is our treasure. And when we realize that, that we have a treasure that ultimately will fulfill us, we will be content. That's really what contentment is, that we're looking for that treasure that will fulfill us. But I was still wrestling with this idea of what does true godly biblical contentment look like? I mean, does it mean that we should just have this kind of laid-back attitude about everything, not get too excited about things, not get too down about things, but just kind of float through life and, and I mean, be content in absolutely everything? Should we, we be content about the fact that there are 147 million orphans worldwide? 
and be so content that we aren't doing anything about it? Should we, should we be content that there are people all around us who, unless they come to know Christ before they die, are going to spend eternity in hell? Should we be content about that? And that's what I was wrestling with this week, of what does true godly biblical contentment look like? I mean, there were people back uh, in Paul's time, Greek philosophers called the Stoics, who really lived with that mentality of saying, you know what? We're just not going to let anything really cause us to have emotional ups and downs. We're not going to show emotion. We're just going to kind of be stoic. We're going to just kind of float through life with this detached mentality. But when I look at Paul, that's not how he lived. Paul, if anyone was, has been passionate in the history of, world, of the world, who is Paul? I mean, Paul's the one who said, I consider everything a loss compared to the greatness of knowing Christ. I mean, Paul's the one um, who said in Philippians chapter 3 that, that he hasn't yet taken hold of the goal that, that God's laying out before him of knowing Christ better and making him known, but he presses on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I mean, he, he's, he's pressing on as a runner running a race. He's not content with where he is. I mean, he's the one who in Galatians 1, when the gospel was being distorted, he said, um, if anyone preaches to you a gospel other than the one that you received, let him be eternally condemned. I mean, he is not, uh, not content with the perversion of the gospel, with the gospel being distorted. I think back to Romans chapter 9, and Paul there was talking about uh, his fellow Jews and how many of them weren't turning to Christ. And listen to his anguish here. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, those of Israel. Paul, Paul's heart was burning because he wanted his fellow Israelites to come to faith in Christ. And so, so as I was wrestling with this idea of what does true contentment look like, here's, here's what I really came to. That when we look at our lives, that we are called biblically to be passionate about the things that are central to the gospel and to God's calling in our lives. These are things about wanting to know Christ better. Don't become complacent and content with where you are in your walk with God. Keep pressing forward. It's to never be content um, with, with not sharing the gospel with others, but instead be passionate about making Christ known. Be passionate about honoring Christ in your workplace, honoring Christ in your neighborhood, honoring Christ in your family. Be passionate about those things. Don't be content with good enough in those things. Don't be content with worldly standards in those things. But on the flip side, there are things that we should definitely be content about. We should be content and hold loosely to the things that have little eternal significance. Care deeply about the things that matter in light of eternity. Hold loosely and be content with those things that don't matter that much in light of eternity. Over the last few months, I've been thinking about, a lot about this idea of where is my emotional energy going? Because we all have emotional energy that we invest in things. And we see it through what we're daydreaming about, what keeps us awake at night, uh, through the things that we get really excited about or the things that we get really discouraged um, or depressed about. We all have emotional energy that we're directing in various places. And I was wondering, where is my emotional energy going? Where am I investing it? And the, the, the original place this came to my mind was when I was watching St. Louis Cardinals baseball this summer. I didn't actually watch it. I was following it just on the internet with their games and stuff. But I, I, I realized, you know what? When they win, I'm kind of happy. When they lose, I'm kind of sad. 
I mean, it wasn't like these huge ups and downs, but what I began to think about as I was kind of following these games on the internet just each night with how they're doing, I realized, why am I investing so much emotional energy in something that really does not matter at all in light of eternity? It really makes no difference to my life in the big scheme of things in terms of what really matters if the Cardinals win or lose. And this came into even greater clarity this last week as the Cardinals were in the World Series. I mean, they had a good season, but they lost the World Series. And, and then during the World Series, there were some nights I watched parts of the games, and some nights where I had meetings or other things where I just couldn't really watch. And so I just check the score at the end of the game or pick up the last inning or some, something like that. And I realized, you know what? My mind is so much more at ease. I'm so much more content when I don't watch the game and I just check the score afterwards. It's amazing how that happened. I did not spend nearly as much emotional energy on something that really doesn't matter. There's nothing wrong with watching sports. But what I was doing was recognizing I need to watch where I'm investing my emotional energy. That's also why, as I shared a few weeks ago, why I don't play fantasy football right now in my life. It's not bad. Just, it's, I would invest way too much emotional energy in that. That I'd rather invest in things that matter a whole lot more. So where is our emotional energy going? Is it going to the things that are of little eternal significance or the things that really matter in light of eternity? If you were to look and do a word study on the topic of contentment through Scripture, you'd find that the vast majority of the instances where Scripture talks about being content talk about money. And it's for good reason. We, we use a lot of emotional energy thinking about money. Let me give you one example uh, that ties it back to our passage today. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. There's a phrase there that I've had memorized for a long time where God says, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. But it wasn't until a few months ago that I really thought about the whole context here. Beginning in verse 5, the author says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So he's saying, be content. Keep your lives free from the love of money. And the reason is because God will never leave you. God will never forsake you. God is a greater treasure than money could ever be. And because of the fact that God is always with you, that he will always be strengthening you, that his grace will always be sufficient, we can be content in this life. Even think about matters of life and death. I mean, many times we fret over our health. We fret over, am I going to keep living or am I going to die? But in, in the biblical perspective, even those issues are peripheral issues because death doesn't have the final word. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. That's why Paul says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Even, even death and health are things that we shouldn't ultimately invest that much emotional energy into. Instead, we should focus on the things of eternal significance. I believe that contentment is one of the greatest distinguishing characteristics of being fluent in the gospel, of applying the gospel to our lives. Now, I want to call our attention to the final verse of the book of Philippians as we close out today. Philippians chapter 4, verse 23, Paul says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now, this is a pretty standard way that Paul uses to conclude his letters. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit or something like that. But this isn't just like an over and out 10-4 good buddy type of thing. It's not just some cliche. Paul is literally saying, may God's grace be with you. 
May you recognize God's grace in your life. May, may you recognize that his grace is sufficient for you so that you can find your true joy in him, so you can live a gospel-centered life, so you ultimately can find true contentment in Christ and Christ alone. May that be true of us. May, uh, may, God's, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with each one of our spirits. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace and that you offer true life to us, Lord. We do confess that we oftentimes look to so many other things that are nice things, but they don't ultimately satisfy. Lord, may our ultimate focus be on you. May our emotional energy be spent on things that truly matter in light of eternity. God, may your grace always be more than enough for us. In Jesus' name, amen.